The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to TechSequences. It may surprise you to know that social media has been around for more than two decades. The first social networking site called Lunar Storm was founded in Sweden in 1996. ICQ, the popular instant messaging system, was also founded in 1996 by Mirabilis, an Israeli company. However, it wasn't until 2004 when MySpace hit 1 million visitors a month that social media, such as it was, entered mainstream. Since then, social media has come a long way. It has simultaneously been credited with enabling citizen journalism, supporting political uprisings against authoritarian regimes, and giving a voice to those traditionally disenfranchised, such as LGBTQ youth, to amplifying hate speech and enabling recruitment for extremist ideologies. Regardless of how you may view social media, you are likely to be a user than not. Social media has become a significant component of our digital lives with almost 4 billion users across the world. Globally, we spend almost two hours and 30 minutes a day on it. As a result, the companies who run social media platforms have become economic juggernauts. Just consider that Meta's 2021 revenue at $117 billion was more than three times the GDP of the nation state of Bahrain. Despite the various social ills being ascribed to social media, we as users are unwilling and unable to walk away. So what to do? Government regulators in the EU have proposed legislation such as Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act to make social media platforms more transparent and accountable. While in the US, regulators and agencies such as FTC consider antitrust legislation to limit its market power. Are there other alternatives to how social media platforms can operate? In other words, is there a good way we can reimagine and recreate social media as a force for good? Our guest today, Professor Ethan Zuckerman, is a researcher, media blogger, podcaster, and an internet activist. He is the author of the book, Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection, which won the Zocalo Book Prize, and Mistrust, Why Losing Faith in Institution, provides the tools to transform them. He is the Associate Professor of Public Policy, Communication, and Information at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, as well as the Director of the UMass Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure, focused on reimagining the internet as a tool for civic engagement. Prior to UMass, Ethan served as Director of the Center for Civic Media and Associate Professor of Practice in Media Arts and Sciences at the MIT Media Lab. His research focuses on the use of media as a tool for social change, the role of technology in international development, and the use of new media technologies by activists. In 2005, he co-founded Global Voices, which showcases news and opinions from citizen media in more than 150 nations and 30 languages. Through Global Voices, and as a researcher and fellow for eight years at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, he has led efforts to promote freedom of expression and fight censorship in online spaces. 
In addition to authoring numerous academic articles, he is a frequent contributor to media outlets such as The Atlantic, Wired, and CNN. Welcome, Ethan. Thanks so much. Thanks for that uh, overly generous introduction. When we say social media, a lot of people think Facebook or Twitter, where in fact social media is a lot more. Um, there's a difference between Facebook and Reddit and TikTok and YouTube. Um, so one common denominator is that most, if not all, are ad-supported. Should we be looking to change the business models, say subscriptions or sponsorships? And is that even realistic? Sure. I've had the great pleasure of working with a really brilliant young author, Chand Rajendra Nicolucci. Uh, and over the last two years, we've been documenting the diversity of social media, trying to make the point that when we say social media, I think most of us in our head think about Facebook. Uh, but consider for a moment Quora, right? That's also a social network, but it's one that is organized around asking and answering questions. Consider Reddit. It's based around a really old model, one that we used in Usenet, where we had discussions on pretty narrow topics of personal interest. Reddit doesn't much care about replicating offline friendship, which is what Facebook is all about. So these social networks can be very, very different in terms of what affordances they have, what you can do on the platforms. What they do mostly have in common is a business model, and it's the least common denominator business model of the internet, which is you put up a service for free and you monetize it using targeted advertising. It's not necessarily the best model. I think almost everyone who participates in the internet advertising business will tell you that it, it just doesn't actually work all that well. Um, and that there's a huge amount of ads that don't get clicked and don't get explored. But it's the business model that we've come up with that requires the user of a service to do nothing. If you ask people to pay a subscription fee, if you ask people to chip in in the way that somebody like Wikipedia does, lots and lots of people are gonna say no. But for the most part, people don't say no to advertising and therefore it's become the safest model, if not the best model. And we can talk about what sorts of negative implications come from that model. But I do think we have to acknowledge that it is the default model for social media and frankly, for almost everything that we encounter on the Internet. Yeah, I keep hearing about how, you know, inf Internet advertising is about to get its great comeuppance because it really doesn't work and it's all a sham. Um, but yet here we are and still all these ad advertisements. Um, do you think there are any other reasonable or realistic models that might work for for supporting social media? Oh, I think there's tons of models for supporting social media. I just think they're much riskier than the ad model, which because it's the default model is the safe one. Um, I actually think subscription based social media is thoroughly viable. Um, I think if many of these social media companies sort of looked at their average revenue per user and turned that into a subscription fee, I think a lot of people would be willing to pay it. If I could get Twitter to be completely ad and tracking free for whatever Twitter is making off of me in advertising per year, I, I'd feel pretty comfortable making that payment. Twitter's never going to do that. They're never going to do it because subscription models don't 
scale explosively in value. Um, you need new people to subscribe every year. And these social networks are already at a pretty high level of penetration. They can't support these massive venture capital backed valuations with something like a subscription model. But a subscription model might be a great thing to do for a social network that was focused on a professional community, for instance. The model that I'm most interested in is the one that feels the wackiest to people, which is that I think social networks are a critical part of our digital public sphere. I think we should support them the same way that we support public broadcasting. When I say that, I don't mean public broadcasting in the United States, which is not real public broadcasting. In the United States, that's essentially charitable broadcasting. It's mostly us chipping in and trying to keep these stations alive. I actually mean European public broadcasting, where a significant percentage uh, of the national budget goes towards making sure that we get the information that we need to participate in the democracy. Actually, it's a very reasonable thing to start thinking about social networks that help us be better citizens and are supported in the same way the public media is supported. So can we look at the connection between the ad supported models and ultimately uh, connect the dots to some of the social ills that are ascribed to social media? As an example, you know, in the ad tech space, it has come under a lot of fires, Leslie said, because for advertising, you need to collect a lot of data so that you can target it better. Some of that data uh, goes into privacy questions, how much control you have of what's actually being collected about you, what do you know even about it? But how would, if, if we were to go to a subscription model, human beings are still human beings. The, the desire for us to sometimes show a different side of us that we would normally do behind a keyboard, it's still existent. So how would a different social model, a different business model, other than say an ad supported model, really combat or tamp down some of these, um, uh, you know, like such as um, going after extremist ideologies or these algorithms that really amplify hate speech? Sure. So, so let's do a couple of things here. The first thing we're going to do is chunk sort of the, the speculative harms of social media into two piles. Um, so there's people who speculate that social media is bad for us as individuals. Um, and there are some studies that suggest that social media can be bad for some people in some circumstances. The study that might have become most famous on this is a study about the effects of Instagram on body image. Um, the takeaway most people took from that study is Instagram makes teenage girls hate themselves. The more nuanced from the people who've read the study is about one third of college age women who report that they use Instagram to look at content from health and beauty influencers end up having negative body image associated with that content. So absolutely, there are cases where individuals end up feeling negatively from social media. It's also a bunch of cases where people end up getting a lot of support from social media. 
there's a second category which is harm to society and i think this is where a lot of people have been spending a lot of time maybe what's going on in threats to democracy in the us the uk many other countries maybe it is somehow related to misinformation spreading wildly on social platforms maybe it is related to extremist content getting a lot of play on on social platforms here's how that theory works out technically if facebook has an incentive to keep me on the platform and keep me clicking ads if youtube wants me to watch the next video they are going to use the recommendation algorithms to feed me content that keeps me engaged there is evidence that suggests that some of the content most likely to keep me engaged is high emotion content so something that makes me angry something that makes me passionate so perhaps youtube facebook and others have an incentive to send me mis and disinformation extreme information to push me down rabbit holes lots of experiments being done on this consensus on youtube seems to be coming around to yeah youtube's algorithm probably did push people towards extremes around 2018 2019 it's gotten a lot better since then it's quite clear that youtube has sort of cleaned up their act a little bit what's interesting to ask is how inherent this is to the model we have folks like shoshana zuboff offering this critique of surveillance capitalism very helpful term which basically has two pieces to it piece one is that this whole business is based around collecting data and trying to target ads to people and it's a giant data vacuum cleaner that is barely regulated if at all i would say almost everybody agrees with piece one of the critique piece two of the critique is and these companies can do crazy magic things like persuading us to believe different things based on all this data that they have on us. And there I would say there's immense division in the field. I think a lot of us feel like that promise that advertisers, whether they're political advertisers, whether they're the platforms themselves, can shape our behavior, that that is profoundly overhyped. My take on this is we are over-focused on social media. What we actually want to be talking about is what's the relationship between democracy and the public sphere in 2022. There's a whole bunch of things that have changed simultaneously. The formal press is weaker than it used to be. Yeah. In the United States, we've lost tons and tons of local newspapers. We're down to a few very large national papers that also have to play for audiences. We don't have gatekeepers anymore essentially saying, here are the facts. Instead, we have some very different factual universes. We have a lot of actors who figured out how to create propaganda that's very successful on TV as well as on social media. When we look at this whole problem of the digital public sphere, absolutely, social networks, how we participate in them, how we pay for them, part of the problem, but part of a vast complex process, which is really the process of going from the broadcast public sphere prior to 2000 to the participatory public sphere, which really starts kicking in 
as you said in your intro, around 2005, and is probably now the dominant public sphere that we're working within. I'm trying to tease apart in my mind sort of the difference between sort of the general engagement and the kinds of things that lead to that kind of concern about, you know, it's it's ruining democracy and so on and so forth from from the positive side. And, you know, like all the you were you were suggesting that social media can provide a positive basis and support for people as much as it can tear them down. And and I'm thinking of, you know, all all of the things that pastimes, crafts, favorite sports teams, whatever that are supported as well by these platforms. And it seems to me that um, that that distinction has to be made at some level, whether it's in the business model or in the governance model or in, in just what we call these things. And and I'm, I don't know if, if you have any thoughts about how that would be usefully teased apart in any way. Well, let me, let me suggest maybe two ways to tease it apart. Um, my lab right now is doing a bunch of work on Reddit. Um, I have an utterly brilliant data scientist, Virginia Partridge, who is going through the process of clustering together the top 10,000 communities on Reddit. These are called subreddits. And she's basically grouping them together based on a couple of different factors. One of the main ones is um, if you comment in two or more different Reddits, we try to cluster them together. So it turns out that someone who comments in the r slash knitting Reddit also comments in the r slash crochet Reddit. They have a lot of overlap between the two of them. And what this means is that you can actually build a map of Reddit. And that map's pretty interesting. I think most people who know anything about Reddit either know that it's where R the Donald came from, which was this far right wing conspiracy community, or they know it's where R slash Wall Street bets came from, which were the people who tried to hack uh, GameStop. Um, if you actually look at this map, what you sort of find out is, you know, a quarter of Reddit is video games, about a quarter is anime, uh, a, about a third of it, you know, is is real life communities, cities, sports teams, things like that. Um, these extreme categories, these categories that sort of raise red flags, they are a tiny minority. And compared to something like Gab.ai, which really is, um, you know, Nazis the go-go, it really is a problematic space. Some of these very broad and influential spaces are probably just badly misunderstood in part because we don't have maps for them. So that's the first. The second is that people use the tools they have at hand, even if those tools aren't appropriate. Let's imagine for a moment that I want to talk with the parents of other seventh graders at the junior high that my son goes to. The most likely way I would do this would be to start a group on Facebook. The trick with that is that Facebook will have me under surveillance. I'm subject to Facebook's rules. There is a moderator somewhere in the Philippines working from a three ring binder deciding what allowable speech is. A much better model for this would be a model that a friend, uh, friends of mine in the Netherlands are putting together called PubHubs. This is a small social network designed specifically for local groups in the Netherlands. It's actually designed for the local soccer club or the group of people who go biking together or the parents who have kids in the same school. And it's provided as a public service. It's provided as part of what that school 
provides to their community or it's something that your dues as a bike club member pay for. You can build social networks really differently. And if we build those social networks differently, if we build them for different purposes with different tools and most critically with different governance, if you're running a social network for your bike club, your bike club should govern what's allowable speech on that social network. It's pretty straightforward. One of the things that's happening is that when we move our online communities on the platforms we don't control, we're actually losing out on a really valuable form of civic education. We used to get quite a bit of civic education by participating in community organizations, whether that was the bowling league or the Elks Club. This is one of the things that Bob Putnam complained about in his book, Bowling Alone. He was worried that we were losing our weak ties, but he was also worried that we were losing our ability to sharpen those skills, the skills we need to participate in a democracy. I actually think we can sharpen those skills online if we start building the right spaces and treat them as spaces for governance rather than spaces for moderation. What do you say to people who would criticize this idea of setting up these alternative social media, not on the basis of that this is a good idea, but really on the basis of feasibility? In other words, the reason that Facebook is so successful, the reason that Twitter is so successful is because so many people early on joined. So they kind of created this community, regardless of, you know, where you were in the world, I can go and find who I went to high school with. I have no idea whether he's a biker or not. And so this creates this data vortex where the more that they have, the more sticky they become to users. So how do you, how do you convince people to leave Facebook or Twitter because the content that you get from there is so varied. It's your bike club, it's your neighborhood information, but it's also finding your long lost friend. So for starters, I don't actually want anyone to leave Facebook or Twitter. Um, when I'm designing social networks, I am trying to build a world in which people might be members of a dozen, 20, 100 social networks. The first thing that I have to do with that is accept that you're not going to have 100 icons on your iPhone and switch between those different social networks. We need social networks to work a little bit more like email. You have a single email program. It might be pulling an email from multiple different servers. And by the way, your email client is probably loyal to you. It's letting you say, these are the messages that are important to me, filter these ones out, these ones are spam. You can't do that on Facebook's app. You can't go in and say, please don't show me that. I don't ever want to see that again. Facebook is controlling what information is going to you and what information you're sending back to Facebook. And by the way, that Facebook client on your phone is capturing information about every interaction. Did you look at a post? Did you click on a post? Did you linger on it? So we need a client that lets you interact with multiple social networks and, and we're building that. That's one of the projects that we've got going on over at the University of Massachusetts. So let's talk about what advantages Facebook has. The first advantage they have is called the network effect, right? Everyone feels like they have to be on Facebook because Facebook is a very powerful telephone book. 
And I actually say it does a very good job of doing that. There's a very good chance that you can find that high school friend on Facebook, and that's an incredibly valuable service. But then you have to use Facebook to interact with that person, and that might not be the best way to do things. You might want to have an interaction with that person in a much more confidential space or a space that is themed around something very specific like your high school reunion. So what you really need to do is be able to interoperate between social networks. You need to be able to say, great, I found you on Facebook. Now let's go over to another social network where we can operate within the rules that we want to use. Facebook hates that idea. And every time people try to build tools for interoperability, Facebook goes to the courts and tries to knock them down. If we were going to try to change the environment that we're in, interoperability is probably the most important thing we could work on. You referenced the DSA, the DMA, when we opened, they are trying very hard to bring interoperability to the space of messaging. Uh, and that's going to be tricky, but they're doing it probably because people are used to using SMS and SMS is interoperable. It doesn't matter whether you're in Sweden and someone else is in Ghana, you can send an SMS back and forth. I think really interesting things happen when I can use this client that I control and read something on Facebook and then invite somebody over to the social network that I control over time. I think will be less dependent on Facebook and Twitter, but I actually don't think they'll disappear. I think Twitter's incredibly useful as a way to talk to media. I think it's incredibly useful as a way of having political discussions instead of knowing that it's a backdoor into public conversation. I think Facebook's an amazing phone book. I think it's an amazing way to kind of look for people. What I think is the problem is that we're within a particular form of capitalism where winner takes all and these businesses have to see themselves as the only ones in the world. If we look instead and say our goal is to create a healthy public sphere to support democracy, then being able to sort of say to Facebook, great, you've got a business, you can advertise, but you know what, you're going to have to interoperate and you're going to have to interoperate because we need many, many different spaces. And we need people to be do, able to do things like take their Facebook credentials and participate in a different social network that they have control over. All of this is technically possible. We have started building this on small scales. What is not always possible these days is making it legally possible. Um, and if it's not legally possible, it's not practically possible. We're not going to pull people into these new networks. But this would be a great space for people who want to legislate social networks to take very, very seriously. Yeah, I, I true confession moment. I was co-chair of a working group that was working on trying to make instant messaging interoperable 20 years ago, back when in you know ICQ was a thing and there were, you know, Yahoo and ICQ wouldn't play together and this is a problem. And it didn't fail, as you say, it's not a technical problem. It didn't fail because of technical issues. It failed because there were no business drivers to take it up. And to the extent that, you know, Facebook is a juggernaut, I think this is this is the crux of the problem. 
Well, and in instant messaging, eventually we ended up with XMMS, which was basically a crossover standard um, that came around through what people now call adversarial interoperability, which is to say, I'm going to interoperate with you whether you like it or not. Um, Cory Doctorow, the wonderful author and activist, has written very passionately about why adversarial interop is something that we need and we need within this space. Um, I am becoming that adversary. Uh, I am building software that relies on adversarial interoperability and I'm looking at a variety of legal strategies to start using it. Because I don't wanna shoot myself in the foot, the first networks that our tool Gobo interoperates with are Twitter, Reddit, and Mastodon. And those are three networks that are very supportive of third-party clients. So you can use this client that we're building and it can be genuinely useful. It can put media from a couple of different platforms in the same place and give you a sense for why that's powerful. Our hope is that as people start doing that, they end up saying, why can't I do this with Instagram? Why can't I do this with Facebook? And that becomes part of the pressure that helps Facebook come to the table. We'll see. You mentioned that this is interoperability is a legal question and not so much a technical question, not a technical feasibility. Um, so is it gonna take somebody suing Facebook or is it going to take the government to regulate and say, no, these guys, you all need to be interoperable because right now there's a lot of talk on the Hill about antitrust and the kind of the amount of power uh, these platforms have. As much as I love Elizabeth Warren and I love me some Elizabeth Warren, antitrust is not my preferred pathway to solving the problems that we're in. And here's why. There is a giant, largely unregulated market for advertiser data that already exists. There are something like 5,000 companies that are involved with different aspects of trading user information and data back and forth. If right now we went to Facebook and we took an ax and we sort of cleaved it along the lines of the different companies it's purchased. So now there's Facebook, Instagram's over here, WhatsApp over here, Oculus is over here. Facebook's just going to start sharing data back and forth through this largely unregulated market. It doesn't actually help us on these questions of user tracking. Also, their three core products all have well over a billion users. So they have a highly defensible space where as long as they can sort of armor it and say, no, we're not interoperating with you, they're going to protect their own territory. For me, the way to do this is to say, you've got to allow third-party tools to work with your service. I'll give an example of a third-party tool that just should exist. Um, there was a tool created by a British programmer who was interested in giving people more control over their Facebook experience and to try to get rid of some of Facebook's addictive qualities. And so he built a browser plugin that did something very simple. It went into Facebook and it just took everyone that you were friends with out of your friends feed. And so over the process of about five minutes, it would empty out your friends feed to the point where you didn't have a friends feed. 
you were still friends with these people, you could go onto Facebook and say, hey, I wonder what Leslie's doing. And I could go to Leslie's page and see what she had to say. But my Facebook experience was no longer mediated by the algorithm. Facebook said, nope, can't do that. Violation of terms of service, cease and desist, or we will bring the wrath of God down on you. And that tool does not exist. Um, that's problematic. We have these networks behaving much like Bell Telephone did. And Bell said for many, many, many years, you cannot build hardware that interoperates with our system, you'll break it. And, you know, it is only once we got over that legal regime that we got things like cordless telephones or answering machines, you know, technologies that we now think of as routine, but they were essentially forced off the market by essentially saying no one can interoperate with this sacred network. Facebook has declared itself that sort of sacred network. And forcing interoperability there is one way of getting change that is very compatible with a market society. I'm glad you mentioned data brokers because that is a completely unregulated market and they collect data and you can buy data from them if we can buy it. Um, in fact, Senator Wyden today um, submitted a letter complaining about some uh, data brokers because the data was being uh, sold. If I want uh, data from about your browsing habits or your location or whatever, I typically would have to get a warrant. But I can get that same data from the data brokers without you knowing. So that's a violation of privacy and I don't need a warrant. But if I can get it, so can other perhaps more nefarious actors. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's an amazing, ugly, crazy place that we don't talk about enough in part because it's so hard to talk about. Uh, I mentioned my dear friend, Chandra Chandra Nicolucci. He and I just published a paper in uh, the Yale Journal of Law and Technology. And this is really Chan's paper. He took the lead on this one. He ended up doing a very deep dive in sort of understanding those data broker businesses, understanding um, the different players in the ad marketplace, and you know, found out that even really high quality audits often don't know where about 20% of an ad dollar goes. There's just so many players in the space taking their cuts, doing little bits of it. We ended up proposing a, essentially a fair trade advertising standard, which we call forgetful advertising. So in forgetful advertising, you can geotarget an ad, you can intention target an ad, which is to say, if you searched for roofing services in Western Massachusetts, you can have that information and deliver the ad in response to it. What you cannot do is remember anything about a user from one session to the next. And what's so interesting about that is if you make that one little change, enormous things change. The first one is that it puts a really interesting moral change on the table. Uh, so I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober almost five years, but I've been on the internet about 30 years. And so there is a data doppelganger out there for me 
who is a heavy drinker. And I still get targeted liquor ads all the time. Uh, it's not a great idea to target liquor ads to me. Uh, even if you can successfully get me to go out and buy a bottle of bourbon, it's probably not a real good thing for society to be selling bourbon to me because I have difficulty stopping drinking it. Targeted advertising doesn't allow us to change. It creates this data portrait of someone we were in the past, and it tries to hold us to it for the purposes of predictability. So targeted advertising has this very basic mental health human rights sort of piece to it. The second is, as you were saying, all those data brokers have this information about my drinking habits, my ad habits, my browsing habits, and are passing it back and forth in ways that could be used in very nefarious sorts of ways. As it happens, I'm very open about my alcoholism, but you can imagine a situation where someone gets blackmailed for this information, so on and so forth. The truth is you can do a whole lot of what's good about web advertising within forgetful advertising. And we're hoping the idea might catch on in the same way that like fair trade coffee costs a little bit more than coffee but you can feel significantly better about having it. Will it catch on? I don't know. We're going up against two of the biggest companies in the world and we're academics putting out a clever idea. But I think one of the first things we have to do in this space is be open to the idea that things could be different. Almost all that's going on on the legislative side of this accepts the world as it is and says, can we make it a little bit less awful? I actually think in many cases, we need to look at these problems and sort of say, well, what if we didn't want it to be awful at all? Like, what if we wanted social networks that weren't awful? We build them in very different ways. We build them so that they were small. We would build them so that we had governance control over them. What if we wanted to build advertising that wasn't dreadful? I think probably the first thing we do is we get rid of tracking so that we're actually dealing with people and their real behavior rather than dealing with these data doppelgangers, these psychological profiles that may or may not be true. You know, there's just so much here in so many different directions. We could probably keep talking for another six hours, but sadly, um, it's, it's time to time to come to a close. But I would say uh, with that, um, five years from now, how much better is it going to be and what what is going to be different about social media? I have been involved with the Internet for a long time. And I have seen companies come and go. And I remember when Yahoo was the most powerful company out there and we had real fears about what they would do and not do. I feel pretty comfortable predicting that some of the things that are on the decline and some of the things that are on the ascendancy are gonna change the landscape quite radically. Um, Social networks are not necessarily the dominant paradigm going forward. I think nonlinear television is. Um, I think things like TikTok and the way that Instagram and YouTube are programming for us um, is a very different form of interaction than social networks and seems to be an even more compelling uh, vision than social networks. I'm not saying it's better. It actually worries me uh, a lot more in some ways. One thing that happens is that as a TikTok, as a, as a YouTube shorts becomes dominant, 
it actually opens the possibility that social networks can become discourse spaces uh, and that they can become civic spaces. Um, so I'm going to predict that we are not as obsessed with these questions of is Facebook feeding us fake news? Because I don't think Facebook's going to be as important. We may be obsessed with how do we audit the TikTok algorithm and how do we deal with the fact that the broadcast experience of just leaning back and absorbing is now fully combined with the algorithmic experience. But I think while we're doing this, this is a great chance to plant a flag and try to build stuff different. And I'm gonna say something that, that sounds subtle, but I actually think it's pretty important. I think the next generation of interesting stuff is not coming from the United States. I think a lot of the scary algorithmic stuff is coming from China. And I think a lot of the stuff that I'm enthusiastic and excited about is coming from Europe. And I think it's coming from Europe because this notion that we need a public sphere to have a functioning democracy is something that most Europeans accept. And it is not something that most Americans understand yet. And so I think the side of this that I'm rooting for, these sort of very self-conscious, small, democratically governed social networks, I am looking to Europe and I'm specifically looking to European public broadcasters, cultural institutions, newspapers, to take a lead there and show us that there's a different way to do this work. I'll look forward to that. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. It was great to talk with both of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.